0: Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot? Then they will cry out to the Lord but he will not answer them. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness without divinations. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the lord among us no disaster could come upon us therefore because of you zion will be ploughed like a field jerusalem will become a heap of rubble the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets this is the word of the lord
1: morning everybody my name is john i have the great privilege of being the vicar at st jude's and we have Uh, Before us this morning, it is a beautiful day outside, but arguably the darkest chapter in the whole of Micah. Uh, It certainly has some of the most confronting language uh, as we read through not just this book, but indeed of the whole Bible. There's some very confronting images. And it's kind of tough to know, what do we do with a passage like this? Uh, and as Ali had uh, very helpfully reminded us, we need to hear all of God's word and what we see here is a focus of these words as dark and as uncomfortable as they are directed at God's leaders, those who are placed among God's people to lead them. And what we see here uh, in all its horrible language is, is the disaster effect, disastrous effect of uh, toxic and sinful leadership. Among God's people, it's as simple as that. Toxic and sinful leadership destroys not just the leaders, but as you see, affects the whole community of God's people. Uh, and so, though they're hard words, they're words that we must heed—not just leaders like myself, but indeed all of us who have responsibilities in God's church. Now, we need to do do actually be careful how we apply this. Uh, remember, in the Old Testament, God's people are a nation and so we need to be careful, we can't just match straight across. Of course, we know in the New Testament we see the broadening of God's people to being the church, one people from many nations and many backgrounds and many cultures, but yet there are still things that we can learn. We're not about to be kind of wiped out from Jerusalem or have Parkville uh, destroyed, but the challenges and the dangers of those leaders are challenges that leaders here at church face as well. I want to highlight four things that we see as we look at the sinful failure of God's leaders in uh, amongst his community, which Micah very strongly speaks out against. Firstly, the comprehensiveness of the faith. Secondly, the corrupt nature of the leaders' hearts. Thirdly, the commercialised nature of their relationships. And fourthly, their compartmentalised worship. Okay, four C's, so you know it's a good Anglican sermon, so, you know... And the conclusion is also two Cs. I've worked very hard this week to give you as many Cs as I can find. So, comprehensive, corrupt, commercialised, compartmentalised. Comprehensive, corrupt, commercialised, uh, uh, compartmentalised. Hard to say quickly. Firstly, notice the comprehensive nature of the failure of God's leaders. See, leaders bear responsibility not just for themselves, but for other people, for the community, that they set up structures and they deeply shape and affect the community of a group of people. It's a cliche, right? The fish rots from the head down. And it doesn't take uh, much thinking to think back throughout even recent history where we see the failure in church leadership has been disastrous disastrous. I'm not going to name names but you can just troll through the media even in our own Anglican church there's been a deep failure of leadership at times. But notice here it's beyond just the religious leaders, it's the leaders uh, who are meant to administer uh, justice and the smooth running of God's people, it's the priests who are meant to mediate and intercede between God and his people and it's the prophets who are there to speak God's word. In other words, God has created structures and responsibilities actually as part of his covenant with his people so they can live in peace, in shalom, in prosperity. That's the good thing God has set up for the good ordering of his people and society but things have gone astray. Back in Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 we see that in God's covenant with his people he's promised to his people that he would be their God and they would be his people, would, would be that they had responsibilities. And Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 1 says this, If you fully obey God, the Lord your God, and carefully follow his commands I give you today, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations. And all the blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord. So God will bless you, you're my people now, and part of remaining as my people is you have to act as my people with justice and mercy and grace. Yet in Micah's day the leaders have done the complete opposite. They have failed to uphold their covenantal promises. And so what does uh, God say through Micah to them in the very first verse of chapter 3? Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice. Or verse 5, this is what the Lord says, for the prophets who lead my people astray, uh, verse 9, hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel who despise justice and distort what is right. Verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money. In other words, it's not just a few bad eggs, the entire dozen is rotten in the, in the, uh, in the egg, uh, what are they called, carton. It's a systematic failure of leadership. It's a culture that is rotten to the core. At every aspect, every leader, every structure, it's functioning the opposite to what God wants. Both religious and non-religious leaders. That's the context we find this failure of leadership. It's comprehensive. And secondly, notice, at its heart it's corrupt. They have forsaken justice. That's why they're so corrupt. That's, that, that's the kind of outworking of their corruption. Look at verse 1 again. Uh, then I said, listen you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not, and this is a little line, embrace justice. That little word there embrace is really interesting. Embrace justice. That's what the leaders are meant to do. Uh, that little word embrace is the Hebrew word to know. Uh, and in, in the Bible, that, that word to know, it's the same language in Genesis 3, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, wanting to know. It's, a, it's a much deeper than just an intellectual knowledge. It's often used of sexual relationships. Uh, Adam, it says, knew his wife. It's the same word. Embraced his wife, the translation that we've gone with here. In other words, it's not just intellectual knowledge, things you know about. It, it's an intimate knowledge, a knowledge that shapes who you are defines who you are it's your character it's what you know leaking out into your actions it's truth in action not just truth that you can answer a, qu- a trivia quiz right what does the lord require of you i know the answer great are you living out the answer that's what it means to know to embrace justice and it's a, it's a good warning and reminder for us in leadership that it's not just about knowing what to do or knowing the right answers, but are we men and women who are shaped by justice, by mercy? Is it part of our culture, of our, um, I didn't know about DNA, but part of our DNA it would be the, the phrase that, that Micah may have used. It's something we all have a part to play. Embracing justice. Uh, Verse 2, would you believe it gets worse? You who hate good and love evil. Uh, It it is such a a stark contrast and really powerful language. Not like kind of indifferent to good or evil, you know, not care about good and evil. No, it it says hate good. You know what hate, hate is? It's that, that visceral emotion, that bile that rises up in your throat, that, that, where that sense of anger and disgust. You just think, oh, I can't. it's to revile something. And here it's reviling good. And loving evil. You know when love, when your heart skips a beat, when that certain person walked in the room, where all you can do is think and obsess about it, that, that your heart longs for it and it keeps you awake at night. Evil. Evil is keeping these people up at night because they want to do more. They long for it. They thirst for it. It's it's really stark, isn't it? And then it gets worse. (laughs) It gets worse. Look at the result of this evil and and good in kind of opposite directions. Uh, Those who, who tear the skin from my people and eat the flesh from their bones who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Now, what is this the language of? It's the language of cannibalism. isn't it? It's, it's very confronting. No one puts this cross stitch on a pillow, right? This is not the verse that you say, I'm a Christian, I've got this tapestry on my wall. It's meant to be confronting. That Why does God use such, like, it is confronting language. Why does he use such confronting language? They're not literally doing this, by the way. They're not literally eating people. But why does he use such powerful and emotive language? It's because God wants to teach them something utterly vital and important. For them to truly understand the depths of their sin and failure to feel the weight of it. That is, when they treat people with injustice, it is like you are literally eating them. The consequences of your sin, when you fail to have minister to justice, has reduced you and reduced the people you speak to as a mere commodity, something you weigh by the kilo, rather than the person that you love. In other words, you no longer see their innate value as people made in God's image. You see them as a means to an end. Something you consume. They've become consumers of people. That's the kind of language, literally, it's kind of a very powerful metaphor, isn't it? God is saying, you treat people like something you pay by the kilo for. And there's a similar language in verses 9 and 10, by the way. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, you despise justice, you distort all that is right, you build Zion, that is, you build the holy city of God where God dwells with his people with stones and precious gold. With what? With bloodshed. And Jerusalem, that great city where God lives with his people with glory and goodness No, with wickedness. And as these leaders dehumanise others, they actually become dehumanised themselves. They become like animals. And that's the the terrifying effect of sin. Not only does it dehumanise the people you sin against, it ends up dehumanising you. But notice that's not God's attitude to his people. Notice throughout this, he refers to God, his people, as my people, all the way through. Verses 2 and 3 particularly, you can see it. My people. The leaders have forgotten whose people they are. They're commodities to be traded or to make a profit out of, but God says, no, no, they are my people. And what this means, of course, is you've never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God. You've never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God and can you see once you start seeing people through those eyes how you then start treating people differently not, doesn't matter whether it matters to me or not something far more important than that is they matter to God doesn't matter if they're easy to love or hard to love what it matters is they matter to God it helps us reframe how we see people, how precious they are God says to them, they are my people Therefore, you treat them with justice and your mercy. It should be part of our culture. You should love good and hate evil. Why? Because they are my people. They are created in my image. And so we need to hear this warning if we are in positions of leadership. Any sort of leadership. Any sort of responsibility in our church. Do you see the people you serve as people who matter to God? Or are they there to build up your ego? Or are they a drain on your energy? Do you see them as something you consume or someone you love? Because the leaders of God's people forgot they were his people, that they were God's people. And so became corrupt. Which leads us to the third point, commercialised. And one of the main reasons and effects we see of this corruption is they commercialise their relationships, rather than being relationships of grace and family. They become transactional relationships. This is what the Lord says in verse five: "As for the prophet to lead my people astray, they proclaim peace." Well, that that sounds good, right? Oh, if if sorry, uh, if they have something to eat. Uh, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to leave them. Isn't that the most uh, simple definition of spiritual abuse? Yeah, uh, let me, let me, it's, it's, yeah, I'm happy to tell you what you want to hear, but uh, make it worth my while. That better be a good burger for lunch today, let me tell you. Or I'm preaching, I'm not stopping. And if you don't, not just I won't preach, but I'll actually declare war. That language is so harsh, isn't it? These are meant to be loving and leading God's people, yet they're declaring war against them because their stomachs are empty. So what determines what is preached is not God's word, but how satiated the preacher is, how satisfied the preacher is. Spiritual abuse. Verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. It's not just about getting paid for the job. It's about that becoming the motivation and goal for the job. It is profits for profit. I'll tell you what you want to hear if I hear a little cash tinkle in my wallet. I'll judge in your favour if you do me a favour. I'll, I won't preach against your sins as long as the price is right. A little cash here, a little bribe there and everything's sweet. That's the culture. In other words, justice becomes something that is for sale. You know the golden rule? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. That's not the golden rule Jesus taught us. (laughs) But that's what's happened here. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Justice is for sale. Now, we rightly respond, as I've seen in your faces, with disgust and anger at this leadership. And you may have experienced this yourself. And if you have, I'm terribly sorry because it is an awful, awful situation to be in, particularly in a a church context. But here's the thing, right? What sits behind this is a failure of integrity. A failure of integrity. This is kind of at the heart of the issue why it's ended in this commercial this commercial arrangement. Because rather than standing up for what's right, people stand up for what is convenient and beneficial. And my experience is these things happen really slowly. It's not as if they went from doing the right thing to cannibalism in one like in one day. Right? It wasn't. It wasn't like it's a it's a series of really small tiny steps away from following God, from a position of integrity to a position of benefit. That's what will happen in your life too. You won't one day think, you know, I'm serving the Lord faithfully, tomorrow I'm going to throw it all away and make money just for me and not serve God. It'll be small steps. It's what the, the series Breaking Bad, if you've seen it, it is a perfect picture of how that happens. Step by step, Walter White is pushed away from chemistry teacher to drug lord. But it never happens in one day and there's all these very human moments where he's forced to make a position of integrity. And each one of them seems convincing. There's really good arguments why he chooses the wrong... You'd see why he chooses the wrong one. But he slowly drifts away. Because we know the prosperity doctrine is wrong, that's that's not, not what we hear. But we do live in a culture where finance and money and success are high values and you'll be tempted and pushed in that direction unless you stand firm. Let me give you two examples of uh, friends of mine who faced this in their workplaces. It's a slightly different context but it gives you an idea. There's a friend of mine called John who ran uh, a lab which tested uh, like, uh, samples of blood and all kinds of things for diagnostics, a diagnostic lab. And he discovered that the software you need, it's all computer-based, is a subscription model, and the subscription had run out, but yet they hadn't been given the next invoice, which you can imagine is significant. And they worked out they could keep receiving the use of this software for free. Think of the budgetary savings. It's a victimless crime, right? Because it's a software company, no one really cares, right? He took it to his boss. Said we need to do this. His boss said, oh, "What are you talking about? We can save thousands of dollars." He says, "I will resign unless you pay the bill." Right? There's the slippery slope moment. There's that moment, right? What are you going to do? Do you just let it slide? Or another friend of mine, uh, Ruben, who worked for a university in a, in a vet school, was pressured by his boss to pass overseas students because, of course, they're full fee-paying students, right? And these students, if they're only in 48, 49%, percent. They're pretty close to. It's only like it's only a little. It's a little thing, right? But think how much money we can get for the vet school. How much good we can do with that money. We can save all these puppies and kittens, and you know that's all good, right? Just, just rethink how you've marked. I'm not telling you to go against your integrity. Just rethink how you've marked, right? To see the temptation. It's subtle, isn't it? It's not like. Go murder say, go murder dogs. We all know that's wrong, right? No one, murder puppies. No, we're we not doing that. Rethink, maybe the bump that 49 to a fifty. That's how our integrity is pushed and challenged. Uh, in the church, absolutely, but I think there's a lesson here more broadly. Then temptation to remove relationships from a relational connection to a transactional nature will be there all the time. Success is not prosperity, but justice. We offer a different view. More fourthly, we see that their worship has become compartmentalised. And what I mean by that is, it's not as if, although these leaders are genuinely awful and corrupt, actually, they've not stopped worshipping God, did you notice? Uh, But what they have done is only worship God on their own terms. That's the kind of MO for worship. In verse 4, notice, they cry out to the Lord. The second half of verse 11, um, yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. So they're actually crying out to God, they're worshipping God, they're seeking his blessing and and his direction in life. But they've completely compartmentalised their worship of God. It's separated from their everyday life. We can do what any anything we want. We can exploit anyone we want. We can get rid of justice, and if things go wrong, we'll call God. If things go bad, we'll cry out to the Lord. And what they've done is they've reduced their worship of God to a lifeboat. It's called lifeboat theology. Copyright Force 2020, Five, 2022. right? You can use it by the way, free of charge. No money. The last point, no money. Lifeboat theology. And it's a really common way of seeing God. You keep God for those just-in-case moments. In case of emergency, break glass. In case the boat starts sinking. That's when you need your lifeboats. And that's what these leaders are doing. They have a lifeboat God. Well, how does God respond to their lifeboat worship? Well, we have the answer in verse 4. They'll cry out to the Lord, but... He will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. In other words, God is not willing to be just a mere lifeboat. Now you might be thinking, look, there are lots of Bible verses where God actually does promise to hear us when we cry out to him. For example, Psalm 40 is a whole psalm about this thing, right? I'll add a patient for the Lord, you turn and you heard my cry. So what's going on here? Why doesn't God hear them? And is this a, should I be concerned that God won't hear me when I cry out? So what's going on? Well, the reason is, when they cry out, when there's no answer, it's because these leaders are not crying out in faith or repentance or independence from God, but in utter hypocrisy. They're not a fan of justice when they're in charge, right? But they want justice for themselves. Help us, God. We need justice. Hang on a second. (laughs) You really? You really want justice? They've separated their kind of working lives from their worshipping lives. They want God to behave very differently to they do. There's a a complete hypocrisy. And so they've compartmentalised their faith. It affects nothing other than when they need God's help. It doesn't shape who they are as God's people. And you can do that as a Christian. You can reduce Christianity to church on Sundays. Right? A Christian is someone who goes to church on Sundays. Now, the answer is, yes, Christians do go to church on Sundays, but that's far too of too, too a reduction, a kind of small part. It's like saying, a bride is someone who walks down the aisle of a church. Well, the answer is yes, but it's a rather incomplete and unsatisfactory picture of what's going on. It's so much more. Because, brothers and sisters, your Christianity, the lie you've been told is that your faith is private. that like Keep your faith private. Now, the answer is, it's personal, but it's not private. Do you see the difference there? Personal, that is, it's, it's about who you are. You, you, you can't become a Christian for somebody else but it's not private. What I mean by that is it affects who you are and all your relationships. It shapes how you view your work colleagues. It shapes how you you care for those under your care if you are a parent. It shapes how you work with integrity in your workplace. You can't reduce Christianity to Sundays or treat God just as a lifeboat. And we can do this too with sin. I can ask the hard question, which part of your life is not under the Lordship of Christ? Anger? Gossip? The way you use your finances? Your sexual relationships? Your arrogance? Your patience? Or perhaps lack thereof? Are they parts of your life that you're you're not willing to have God be, be Lord and Master of? Worshipping God with most of your life because we need to hand them over to Christ because he is Saviour and Lord. Saviour and Lord. They wanted just the Saviour, they didn't want the Lord. But he's both. That's the beauty of Christ. There are the four C's, but I promised you two more, didn't I? In conclusion, that's not one of them, that's a bonus one. (laughs) (laughs) Too many C's here. Uh, Condemnation. What do we see when when these leaders uh, are brought to face God's justice? Well, what they do is they face the fearsome certainty of judgment. They are condemned. Notice in verses 7 how we see God's judgment linked to two big themes. The idea kind of of silence and the idea of darkness as symbols of God's judgment. In verse 4 we see they'll cry out to God but he will not answer. So there's silence. At that time he will hide his face from them because of the evil he's done. Now the idea of God hiding his face, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a symbol uh, God's face shining upon you in Numbers twenty six twenty four, that beautiful blessing, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. A beautiful blessing. And so for God to shine his face is for him to show his blessing and mercy and love towards you. And so therefore for him to hide his face is for him to hide all those things from you. Hide his blessing and his mercy. And in scriptures, darkness and night are symbols of God's judgment. Verse 6, therefore, night will come over you. It's not just talking about the time of day, you know, it's going to be dark. No, no, you're saying it's a spiritual darkness. Why is it spiritual? You can see. look, there's no visions in the darkness, no divination, the sun will set for the prophets. In other words, they won't receive their spiritual gifts of prophecy. The day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed, the divine is disgraced, they will cover their face because there is no answer from God. There is silence and there is darkness, the symbols of God's judgment upon these, these leaders. They are a sign that God is not present with his people. Now this is, this is Jerusalem. This is the place where God is meant to be living and dwelling with his people. Now, just a little note on that phrase, uh, separate or God is not with his people. We need to be careful about what we're saying there. Often we speak of hell as the place where God is there or separated from God. Uh, we still need to maintain that God is sovereign and present in all places. In other words, there's nowhere where God is not. Not as if uh, he's saying, Look, I, I'm, I'm kind of not, I'm, I don't know what's going on anymore, I've, I've left the room. No, God is still present. He is absent in blessing and present in judgment. When we say separated from God, we're not saying he's disappeared, he's saying he's present but in judgment. In other words, to speak of God being near and God being far, you may have heard of that language in the scriptures, God is near to us, God is far from us. It's not a temporal or a distance, it's about a relational closeness. It's not like God's 50 k's away and God is far, or God's two metres away, God's close. God is far, he's holding people in judgment. God is close. He's with us. Like a family member, right? When they're far away, you miss them, right? It's not great. Wow, some great Aunt Beth is flying in from, from London next week. She's going to be near. It's going to be beautiful. right? That's, we kind of get that. And this judgment will be so vast and complete that even the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The very place, the centre of worship. That's how serious things are. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be ploughed like a field. Zion's another word for Jerusalem, by the way. Just another another word for that. Jerusalem will be a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Now, in the Hebrew language, in in that kind of culture, if you repeat something, it is for emphasis. If you repeat it twice, it's for a lot of emphasis. Three things. You have repetition. God is saying, this will happen. This will happen. God will not let justice go unjudged. Which is, by the way, this this is why this passage actually is good news. Now we said it was very dark and hard. It is, because it highlights human sinfulness. But the good news is that our God is just and merciful, which means evil and justice don't win. They don't win. And I find that of deep comfort. Because even when human justice is working well, at its best, it is still flawed and incomplete. Just thinking of two recent uh, cases, there are lots of them. There's the story of William Tyrrell, that poor little boy who's been missing, we've no idea what happened up in uh, mid-north coast, New South Wales. I follow that well because that's right near where my in-laws live. Or more recently with uh, Bruce uh, Lehman and Brittany Higgins. The best human justice, the best, is always flawed, always incomplete, always unsatisfactory, always leads us wanting more. But God's justice never fails. And so there is hope there. In fact, this is the big picture of Micah is judgment, hope. In other words, hope comes through judgment. And so you can say, look, is this a chapter without hope? And the answer is, of course, like all good Christian answers, yes and no. Yes and no. See, in the very next chapter, I'm not going to preach the next chapter, by the way, just to give you a heads up. The fifth thing, no, no. Um, the next chapter, what we see is a vision, actually, of the temple restored. Like, at the end of chapter 3, smash, destroyed. Chapter 4, rebuilds. In the last days, this is the very first verse of chapter 4, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains and it will be exalted above the hills and the people will stream to it. Here's the hope. The Lord Almighty will be prophet and priest and king but not just over Israel as a nation but over all the nations including the Australian nations. So here we have a God who is bringing judgment and justice and a God who is bringing restoration and hope. And they seem like opposite things. The temple is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to get built. Yes and a no. So How do we reconcile those two things? And the answer is, of course, they can only be reconciled when we come to Christ, the final scene. Because Christ is called, referred to by himself as the temple of God, the place where God comes and lives and dwells with us. He was the perfect priest and prophet and king. No, no failure in leadership with Christ, with the Lord Jesus. And he dealt with the sin, not just of the leaders of God's people, which is a good start, but with all the sin of all God's people, which includes you and me. Now, I wonder if you notice, as we read through the text, what I've coined a phrase, I don't know if it's it's been used before, future echoes. I know that sounds like a stupid thing, right? In other words, what I'm saying is, there there are little echoes and hints here of what will happen to Christ in the text. Just little, they're not not overt, they're subtle. Christ is put to death by those who do not embrace justice. A failure of leadership. Uh, Even though he's perfect and without sin, he bears our sin on the cross. What happens at his death? He's surrounded by darkness. That theme of darkness is there. The sun disappears in the middle of the day. He cries out to God, God have mercy on me. What does he receive? Silence. Forsaken. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's because of sin that he's forsaken Not his sin, but our sin, for our failures. And just like chapter 4, Christ is raised to life, gloriously, for all the nations, not just for the Jewish people, but for every single nation on earth, there is now a perfect prophet, a perfect king, a perfect priest, a perfect leader for us to follow as Lord and Saviour. And so if you're in leadership or not, look to Christ above all things. Worship the one who has been slain for you and been raised to life for you to bring both justice and hope. Let me pray that we will keep our eyes on Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are only too aware of our own sinfulness and failings And we ask particularly for those of us in leadership that you will give us a character that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. That we will not just know what justice is but we will embrace it. That we will be women and men of integrity, of compassion, of servant-hearted leadership. We ask you, Father, to forgive us those times where we fail. And we thank you that in Christ we have the one who both bears the justice for sin and brings hope for sinners. Amen.